0: SBI show. Hello everybody. I'm Ivis Scalarset and I am back. I'm finally back and I almost want to say Happy New Year, although I think we've gotten a little bit past being able to say Happy New Year. It's February 10th, uh, but this is the start of a new year for the show. It's been about a year since the SBI show was, uh, was around and since the last episode I've been saying for a while now that I was going to bring the show back, and as much as I would have preferred to start on New Year's Day, uh, we had to put it off for a bit, but it's back, it's here, and there's so much to talk about, there's so much news and so many topics to get into in American soccer that now's the perfect time to really get back in it, get back in the swing of things. I know there are a lot of soccer podcasts out there now, but I also know a lot of people have been asking me to bring this show back, so we're back. And we're back at a good time because there's so much to talk about, whether it's U.S. men's national team, MLS. The MLS season is right around the corner. 25th anniversary, 25th year. Of the league, uh, then so many storylines surrounding that, and of course Americans abroad. Uh, and while there have been some some periods where it's, it hasn't been a, the greatest of times for Americans playing overseas, there's actually a very good time right now with several Americans, particularly young Americans, really stepping up and performing well, and uh, giving Greg Burhalter a lot to think about as he starts planning for the bigger games that are coming later in the year. Yeah, the U.S. national team opened 2020 with a 1-0 win over Costa Rica to wrap up their January camp. And as you know, when it comes to the January camp friendlies, you can't you can't read too much into these results. Uh, the games are usually pretty sloppy, not, and it's it's really just kind of it offers an early glimpse into possibilities, but it's not really something to hang your head hang your hat on uh, for the whole year. Now, having said that, you you have to appreciate the performance of a team, a very, very young US team against a veteran, a more veteran Costa Rican team. And while look, that Costa Rican team obviously isn't a full strength Costa Rican team either. It was a team that had several veteran players uh, with plenty of experience. And the US, as young as the US team was, they they outplayed the Costa Ricans and they really showed some confidence and and some quality and and if you're Greg Burlter, you have to feel really good about how that group stepped up to what was a tough challenge for that when you when you think about that camp it was a first U.S. senior national team camp for a lot of those players. Uh, half the squad was made up of players who were eligible for the U.S. under-23 team. So there was clearly an emphasis on that going into this camp and into that friendly. Uh, and obviously, the man of the match, the star of the game for me, and I think for most people... Was Juliánes and uh, the Wolfsburg winger was was electric. He he really was a handful for the Costa Ricans. He he scores the penalty. He converts the penalty kick. Uh, he he just made so much happen in the match. And above all, he played with some real swagger, some real confidence. Uh, And even though he hasn't made his first team debut yet for Wolfsburg, uh, it's pretty clear why he was able to go tear it up with the Wolfsburg U-19s. Uh, uh, He just has that confidence. He has that ability. We saw glimpses of it at the Under-20 World Cup. And let's not forget, he's only 18 years old. So he's still very young. He's still developing. But you see you see the, the qualities that he has, you see the potential that he has, and and now that he has that growing confidence, uh, it, you really see that momentum building and you really can see him breaking through with the first team at Wolfsburg, and as much as you know, as much as you people are gonna want to talk about, oh well, he's good enough for the U.S. Uh, senior national team now. Uh, he needs to be part of every squad going forward. We can take it easy on that uh, uh, for now because I think it's his time's coming. His time will come with the U.S. senior national team with the full squad. But uh, I think he still has some developing to do. If anything, what this performance does is show that he's someone that you cl- clearly want to look at for the under 23s in Olympic qualifying uh, and there there might have been some question before this camp uh, about whether is he ready is he is he is he maybe a little young for that group because again he's eligible for the next olympic cycle he's now eligible for the next uh, t- when you're talking 2024 uh Yanez is actually eligible for that but it's pretty clear he's good enough now so that's step 1 step 2 can you get him released for the olympic qualifying tournament in March being that he is obviously playing in Europe and European clubs are not obligated to to release players. Now, the one one difference in this situation is Greg Berhalter has a good relationship with Wolfsburg's sporting director. Uh, They play together, and obviously Berhalter deals with Wolfsburg when it comes to John Brooks. So there's a good working relationship there. And as of right now, as things stand, Ulianez isn't part of Wolfsburg's first team setup. So if you're Wolfsburg, and you know that Yanez isn't part of your first team. There's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't allow him to go take part in the Olympic qualifying tournament. Now, obviously things can change. Maybe there could be injuries or maybe Yanez goes back to, to the U19s and tears it up to the point that he earns a look with the, with the senior team. But I think at this point, no matter what happens, I think you're going to see Yanez be a part of that Olympic qualifying team. And that's exciting to think about because as he showed in this January camp and in that friendly, he is someone who can make things happen. And as much as there are a ton of very talented wingers in the pipeline, when you think about who you could have for that under 23 team, having Yanez would be a huge, huge victory for Jason Christ in that squad. Now, I was lucky enough to speak to Yanez down in Florida at U.S. National Team camp. Uh, I spent a week down there and was able to, to speak to quite a few players. And, and I've spoken to Yanez before. Uh, I actually spoke to him at the under-20 CONCACAF qualifying tournament in November of 2018. So we're talking a year and some change now. And, uh, you know, he was only 17 back then, but he's already s- matured and grown so much just in the year and change since then. Uh, so it was great to c- catch up with him. And 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 he had some interesting insights into how things were for him uh when he got to germany and how he got through that and it definitely does offer you some some perspective on what a player has to deal with
1: when i first got there in germany it was really hard like i was just just thinking about going home like the next day like what am i doing like is this even is this even for me but michael edwards has helped me a lot as well like we have we've been there for almost a year a uh, year now and ever since then, I feel like he has helped me become a better person. And I, I, I feel like I have helped him become a better person as well.
0: Right. Wait, wait. So when did you get there? Were you After you turned 18, you went?
1: Or was it before that? Before. Right. So what was that first day like? It was terrible. I, feel like, I just felt like I wasn't like home. Huh. Like I felt like I made the wrong decision. But at the same time, I told myself, like it's a risk for me to become a better player. And the thing that always plays in Miami, like my hand, par- like my parents have risked a lot for me, have sacrificed so much for me. This is the least I could do for them to show like what I could do here in Europe. So, but yeah, I think it's a sacrifice that, I think it's a big sacrifice that made me, I think it's gonna change my life hopefully uh, in the future. But I feel like that's the best decision I've ever made in my life.
0: When did it feel... What day did it feel? Like, when when did you have that day where, like, this is... I made the right
1: decision? When I started playing. Uh Oh. And that was... Oh, I mean, when preseason started. Right, okay. When preseason... Because when when I was there, it was just training. Like, I felt like I wasn't good enough. Like, I wasn't playing. Like, all this other stuff. But once preseason started, I just felt like, this is for me. Like, of course, I still miss home. Like, there'll be days I'll be like, why am I here? But it's like... It's a job, you know, it's a, it's it's something that my parents do every morning and that's something I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So it's just felt like, when preseason started, I just felt like that's that's my job now. I can't, like, go back on it now. What was that U20 World Cup experience like for you? How much did that help you also? It helped me a lot as well because just being with the older guys, it was just like, I mean, first it was like the World Cup, like, wow. You know, it's like a dream come true. You never, like, experience, like, because I got left out of the U-17 World Cup and I felt like I should have been on that roster because mm. the, the camps before, I felt like I killed at every camp. And just not getting called to that U-17 World Cup, I think, has helped me even more to, I think it helped me more Look, going towards the U-20 World Cup. It was just an amazing experience. And hopefully next year it's like a, a World Cup that I can remember.
0: About first team minutes, how, how close do you feel?
1: I mean, obviously, Wolfsburg, top, you know, good team, top league. Do you have a sense how close that is? Again, um, I only focus on my soccer, so I just let my soccer do the work. So I just let... how will just see how the season goes, and hopefully everything changes from there. But as of right now, I'm just looking forward to my U19 season.
0: Have you trained with the first team yet?
1: Not yet. Not yet? Okay. But hopefully throughout the season of my U19 season, I get a feel for it. Okay. But just focus on my U19 season, and then we'll just see how it goes from there.
0: So it sounds like for the U20s, I mean, this next cycle, it sounds like you're really like looking forward to that. Because some people might think you know, it's like beneath you at this point because you've already been in the cycle – you're doing so well in Germany. People just assume, and now you're here. People think, oh, maybe you won't be a part of that. So it sounds like you, you, you plan to be a part of that.
1: Um, I like, I want to be a big part of it. Of course, I want to go to the U- uh 2020 World Cup as well, but and the Olympics. So like, that's something I'm looking forward to. So I'm looking forward to going to the Olympics. I'm looking forward to going to U 20 World Cup, the, U- the 2022 World Cup. But, like, I have a lot to look forward to. But the Olympics is something I'm looking forward to. I like, hopefully, I get the call up and see. If Jason wants to call me up, and they need like depth in the winger, so mm-hmm. and uh, if he needs me, then I'm gonna be ready for him and uh, the Olympic qualifiers.
0: Uh, definitely, some some insightful stuff from Uli Yanez from U.S. Men's National Team camp, and uh, it definitely it gives you some perspective uh, about what what young players are dealing with when they go over go over to Europe at a young age. You know, everyone talks about about taking that jump, about, uh, you know, bypassing MLS, going straight to Europe, signing with the European clubs and, and really, uh, you know, striking out on your own, heading over there. And it's not easy. It's not an easy challenge. And as much as, you know, people like to kind of get on, you know, those players who, for whatever reason, couldn't quite uh, make it in Europe at a young age. And and I, we always talk about Landon Donovan and, and the, the tough time that he had at, at Bayer Leverkusen. Um, it's not an easy thing, and no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, uh, you know when you think about Uliana's. I mean, we're talking about a kid who grew up in LA, and you know he he's from the inner city. He's a tough kid. He's fearless on the field. But guess what? He got to Germany, and it wasn't easy. And he thought about going home. He was homesick. So it happens to everybody. It happens to all these players. I mean, these players are not they're not robots, right? I mean, are there maybe some players who who, who deal with it a, a little a better and who maybe have have smoother transitions of course that's always going to be the case but the point is it's not an easy road and it's not for everybody and obviously for those players who take that jump um some of them are going to make it and some of them are going to struggle and it it, i don't think it 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 should necessarily be seen as a knock on those players who who for you know they're not ready who not who who don't make the successful jump over there i mean look at zach stefan right zach stefan went to Germany, started his pro career in Germany at Freiburg, and things didn't go well for him there. And he didn't feel good there. He didn't feel comfortable there. He, at, at, his, at that point in his career, he wasn't ready to make the jump. He comes back to the U.S., he goes to the Columbus crew, he eventually becomes a starter, and now look what he's doing. Now he's back in Germany, and he's he's starting in the Bundesliga, and he's done really well for himself. Um, and that just shows you that you know sometimes, just because a player, it doesn't work for them when they get there, and then they have to, you know, what, leave Europe or, or, or go some other route. Uh, you shouldn't write them off. And you shouldn't necessarily hold it against them for the rest of their entire career because they had a rough go and nearly going. And when it comes down to it, it's easy to forget the fact that there are so many players who were promising prospects, who went over to Europe with all the hype, all the, all the attention, all the expectations, and then who disappeared off the face of the earth and who disappeared. Their careers went nowhere. So... It's not an easy thing. So as much as I know people love to talk about, oh, well, if you want to have a career, you got to go to Europe. If you want to have a career, you can't stay in MLS. And th- there's different ways to go about it. MLS can work for some players. Europe can work for other players. I mean, look at Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams uh, is he's doing really well right now playing in the Bundesliga. He started his career in MLS. He actually started his career in USL, if you want to get technical, playing in USL, working his way up the ladder. And look, Tyler Adams is a special player, and he, may, he probably could have gone to Europe and 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 made it just fine if he went straight to Europe as a 15, 16-year-old. It's entirely possible. And actually, I I would have put any money on Tyler Adams would have been able to make it. But again, back to the point, there's different ways to go about it. And uh, I think maybe people realize that more now, and the fact that I think that what is a positive and what's a, a huge positive is the fact that more and more MLS teams are open to playing young players. And that was an issue for so many years. And it was a big reason why you saw really you could argue a whole generation of players who weren't able to develop because they couldn't get, you know, they stayed in MLS. There was no reserve team system really. There was not they didn't have the USL affiliates that they have now. They didn't have the coaches who were willing to play young players like there are now, like Luchi Gonzalez's of the world. So it's a different, it's a whole different landscape right now. If you're a young player coming up and you want to take that next step in your career, Europe is definitely, there's the opportunity. Actually, there's more opportunity now more than ever in Europe for American players because European clubs are looking for the talent. They're looking for the next Christian Pulisic. Pulisic has definitely opened the eyes of a lot of teams, a lot of clubs, a lot of leagues that see, hey, there's talent in America we can go find it, and you know what? It won't cost us that, that much to bring them over. So the opportunities are there, and you're seeing a lot of Americans make that jump to Europe, but you're also seeing those players who say, you know what? I'm going to stay in MLS. I'm going to start my career in MLS, and maybe I can put my couple of years in, get that playing time, and hone my game, and, then, and also mature, and then make the jump. And then you can, you know, you could be like a Tyler Adams, you could be like an Alfonso Davies. I mean, those two actually just went the, they just did battle in in head to head between uh, Bayern Munich and, and RB Leipzig, the battle of first and second place in the Bundesliga. And both those two players, they developed an MLS. Now Ulianez, obviously, he was in the LA Galaxy academy, and he made that decision to make the jump to 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 Europe. And you can't you can't blame him, you can't blame him because he, as you said, you see someone like Christian Pulisic. You see someone like now Gio Reyna, who's a, once again also at Dortmund, getting the opportunity as a 17-year-old to get playing time on a big club in Europe. So those those players are blazing a trail. And now you're seeing younger and younger Americans making that jump over. And hopefully more and more of them can survive and thrive and flourish. And now we're seeing a player in Yanez who's already starting to take those big, big steps after what were some rough early goings now Ulianes wasn't the only storyline coming out of the january u.s national team camp but there were several obviously uh another one of the big ones was jesus Ferreira, the fc dallas striker uh the young teenage sensation who who recently became a u.s citizen and who had to make the decision on which country he would play for. Now, he's uh, he was born in Colombia. He's the son of former FC Dallas star and MLS MVP, David Ferreira. Uh, now, while Jesus Ferreira was born in Colombia, he was he grew up in Texas, and he came through the FC Dallas Academy system, uh, and he had to make that decision. Do I play for the U.S.? Do I play for Colombia? Uh, and he finally made that decision after going through the January camp, and, and he's playing for the United States. He's, he's put in the paperwork. Uh, to play for the us and now he is tied to the united states uh going forward and uh you know he had a good first imp- uh, made a good good impression in his first cap for the us uh you know he he looked really good and he look he's not a he's not a natural striker but he can you can put him in, in multiple positions on the field you can play him as a second striker you can play him out wide you can also you can play him as a false nine uh but the the point is that the fact is the guy, the kid has got quality and uh for a first appearance it was a very good uh, first appearance for him, and, and he is another player much like Yanes, who should be a key factor in Olympic qualifying. And I have to say, it's a it was interesting to watch that that U.S. team against Costa Rica knowing uh, that more than half of the group was players who are going to be part of the, that U23 setup. And when you look at guys like Jackson Ewell and Reggie Cannon, they're going to be very important parts of that Olympic qualifying team. And even though both both of those players have moved up in the overall senior team depth chart, uh, Greg Berhalter made it clear that he, want, he plans on having those two players be part of the Olympic qualifying team even though they're both right there in the conversation to be to be starters when the, the U.S. team is at full strength. And it's interesting because when you look at at the defensive midfield role, Jackson Ewell is right there in that picture. Michael Bradley has been sidelined by uh, ankle surgery. He's going to be out for, for four months. He's not really going to be in the picture. And obviously at his age, you have to wonder how much longer he's going to be in the picture anyway. So Ewell is someone who is... Put himself into that conversation. I know most people look at Tyler Adams as the number one choice to be in that number six role. I don't know if Greg Berhalter necessarily agrees in terms of uh, uh, positionally who he likes for that number six role in his system. I know most people, myself included, think Tyler Adams absolutely should be your defensive midfielder. You should plug him into the base of your midfield and let him take it over for the next 10 years. We haven't seen yet what Greg Burhalter has planned for Tyler Adams. But I did ask Greg Berhalter about Adams and where he sees him positionally, because there was some question, is he he a right back? Berhalter looked at him at right back the one time that he's had him. Is that something that we should expect going forward? But Berhalter made it clear that he plans on playing Adams in the center of the field. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean as a six it could also mean playing him in a bit more of an advanced role, giving him that freedom to to, to help the attack and and also track back to almost be more of a box-to-box uh, midfielder uh, than, than just as a deep-line midfielder. Because, again, in Greg Berhalter's system, the number six is really uh, a distributor, is really someone who connects the back line to the attack and and really gets a lot of the ball. And obviously Michael Bradley has, has, has played that position for the most part, um, and Jackson Ewell stylistically fits, is probably a better fit for what Greg Berhalter's idealized uh, profile is. And, and you're going to hear that word a lot uh, in in the coming months and years under Greg Berhalter is profile. He has profiles for these players, profiles that he wants to fill and, and specific strengths that he looks for to fill these specific positions. And there's going to be some real questions about that, about, you know, at, at certain points, the, you're gonna have a player who absolutely just needs to play in a position, even though he maybe doesn't fit the profile quite like someone else. Uh, because when it comes down to it, you you really should play the best players. I know that's simplistic to say, but if if you have someone who ha- who who is a better fit from a profile standpoint. Um, Versus someone who is just clearly better in certain areas, but maybe has certain weaknesses in other areas that you, that you value, that's where you really have to start asking yourself, where, which way do I go? And that's how you've had a situation now in the, in, the first, in the first full year under Berhalter, where he's called in some players that leave you scratching your head, like, why is this guy getting called in? What is it about Daniel Lovitz? What is it about Corey Baird? And and I think I think Greg Berhalter could definitely be a victim of of the profile, a victim of being too married to his profiles. And you have to respect that he has these profiles and he wants to find the players that fit those profiles, but. At a certain point, you also have to look at the quality, overall quality of these players, and 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 not get too caught up in in the idea of what they can do as opposed to their overall game. And are they good enough? And when it comes down to it, for me, Daniel Lovitz wasn't good enough. Uh, Corey Baird is not good enough. Those two players we saw a lot of in twenty nineteen, and you know we we didn't see them in the January camp, and I, I I don't think we should see them again going forward because there are other players who are just for me better. Who are better overall players? Who be, who maybe don't fit the profiles that Berhalter has set up for his team, but that's that. You know what? At a certain point, you have to tell yourself, while Lovitz may do things that say Anthony Robinson can't do, he is not a better player than Anthony Robinson. Anthony Robinson absolutely needs to be in the U.S. national team setup. When you consider the left back options, at least until, you know, unless and until some other players come along and, and develop someone like Chris Gloster, Kobe Hernandez Foster, um, there, there are prospects in the pipeline. But you, for me, it, it, you don't want to get caught up in the idea of profiles and, and, and because of that, bring in inferior players over clearly superior overall players who maybe aren't as suited for your system. Overall, if you're a U.S. fan, you have to feel pretty good about the way the team looked in the first match of the year. And if you're Jason Christ, you have to be especially happy with how the U-23 players performed, not only in camp, but in that match. And right now, when you think about Olympic qualifying, that U.S. team that Christ should take to Olympic qualifying is going to be a pretty strong squad. And I had a chance to talk to to Jason Christ down in Florida about uh, making that team and putting that squad together. And he has some interesting things to say. The, the two things that, that, that I thought stood out were, number one, the fact that he does plan to bring some European-based players. And normally in the past, you wouldn't necessarily see European-based players because it's not always easy to get those players released. And as noted earlier, we're talking about Uli Yanez. It's pretty clear that you're going to see some players... Uh, be a part of this group that are over in Europe now who maybe aren't with their first teams. Now we're not talking about Christian Pulisic and, and Wesson McKinney and those those players who are actually eligible for the U-23 team. But no, we're talking about players like Richie Ledesma, Alex Mendez, Chris Richards. I mean, these are all players who are very, very talented players who can make a big impact on this U twenty three team and 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 it's good to hear that there is that relationship that's been established between U.S. soccer and these clubs to try to get more of those players released for this tournament. Now, on the other side of the coin, what was a little concerning is the, is the idea that there are going to be some MLS teams who are not going to necessarily release players for Olympic qualifying. And as we know, with the January camp in Atlanta United uh, choosing not to release Miles Robinson and Brad Guzan and Brooks Lennon, uh, it definitely opens your eyes to the reality of the situation now, which is that uh, you aren't necessarily going to see everybody uh, everybody that's based in MLS released and and that's uh you know that's like unheard of when you think about in the history of, of US soccer when it comes to these kind of competitions it was pretty much uh, a given that MLS players would be available but obviously more and more now it's it's it, it, teams have that authority they have the autonomy to to decide if they don't want to release these players and uh I agree with Jason Christ in the idea that it is it is short-sighted uh to to prevent Players from competing in these types of competitions because obviously you know if they perform on the international stage and potentially down the road in the Olympics that helps their overall careers, their profile, their transfer value. Uh, so it, it's it's it it would be it would definitely be disappointing if you see some players who are key parts of this team, this potential U23 team, who aren't able to play. And if that happens, that that's going to be for me. I think that's going to be a real black eye uh, in the MLS-U.S. soccer kind of arrangement and relationship, and it would be unfortunate, but it's the reality of the situation. Uh, and because of that, you're going to have some players who miss out, and you're going to have some players who are going to take advantage of the opportunity and step in if they'll avoid. So you could see Miles Robinson someone as an example. Miles Robinson not be available for Olympic qualifying, and if he's not... Then that's going to mean an opportunity for another player to step in and fill that void. And the good news, the great news, really, for this U.S. under twenty three team player pool is the fact that there is so much depth all over the field. So, if one or two players are for whatever reason not released, or even if you have a handful of players who are who are ultimately not released, it's not going to be the it's not going to kill this under twenty three team. Where in the past, I mean, when you think about it, think about the the teams that didn't make it. Um, Those lineups, when you look at uh, four years ago, eight years ago, you're talking about teams that only had a handful of of players who were playing regularly. Right now, you can put together a full US under-23 team consisting of players who play first-team soccer on a regular basis. And then you have depth behind those players, of players who are playing regular matches and maybe in some cases they aren't necessarily playing with their first team. But when you look at players like Richie Ledesma and Alex Mendez, who are playing regularly now starting in the Dutch second division uh, as teenagers, but they're still playing regularly. So that that depth is impressive con- considering where the program has is, is come from. And it's still disappointing if if you have certain players who are for whatever reason aren't released, but this team is still going to be in a very good position to qualify and it's not a pushover it's not going to be easy they're definitely going to have a tough go in the group stage they're going to have to beat costa rica in that first match to, if they for whatever reason don't beat costa rica then they're suddenly in a situation where they have to beat mexico in the third group match uh so it's it's going to be it's not going to be an easy go but this is going this is a very good U23 group and Jason Kreiss, it's going to be up to him to put the pieces in place to take full advantage of that that talent. And if the U.S. qualifies, when you start thinking about the kind of team you can take to the Olympics... When you talk about the first te- the U.S. national team first teamers, like the Pulisic, McKinney, Tyler Adams, Josh Sargent, uh, and, and you, now you're talking about someone like Gio Reyna, and then you talk about the overage players that you can bring, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, gets, it gets a little exciting when you start thinking about that. But again, uh, first things first, the U.S. has to qualify, which is something they have not done since 2008, which is crazy to think about, that the U.S. has not been in an Olympics in men's soccer since 2008, which is, you know, no other way to say it. It's pretty embarrassing, but this group that they have coming uh, for the March qualifying group, that that team should absolutely qualify. If this U.S. team does not qualify for the Olympics in 2020, then there's going to be some serious questions to ask because there's way too much talent in this group to justify anything but not only winning, not only qualifying for the Olympics, but they should win the CONCACAF tournament, period. Period. No offense to Mexico, no offense to the other teams in CONCACAF. The talent in this U.S. group should win the CONCACAF tournament. Another one of the big storylines this past week was Jay Perhalter's decision to leave U.S. soccer. And he had been rumored as a candidate to fill the now vacant CEO position. But he has now made the decision to step down amidst reports that he was no longer being considered for the CEO position and uh, my understanding for a while now is that he didn't necessarily want the CEO position. That seems to conflict with, with what has been discussed in public and has been written about. Um, but whether he really wanted it or he didn't really want it, when it comes down to it, realistically speaking, you could not have Jay Burhalter as your CEO when Greg Berhalter is the head coach of the senior men's national team that just was never something that could be allowed it's just something that could that there was no there would not have been a way to defend that or to justify it and when it comes down to it there's definitely been a sense or there's definitely been a perception in american soccer circles that jay berhalter was really the the puppet master behind the scenes that he, he was really kind of the de facto leader, uh, of us soccer for, for quite some time now. And he's kind of the, the, you know, when you think about the wizard of Oz, the the guy behind the curtain. Uh, and for that reason, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I always found it interesting the idea that, that, you know, he would then now go from that being the guy behind the scenes to taking on the CEO position. It just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And, and then once his brother, once Greg Berhalter was hired, you kind of looked at it and just, I mean, I me looking at it on the outside, I'd say to myself, "How in the world would they justify him taking that position now to run and run U.S. Soccer as CEO?" It just never, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And if if that's what Jay Alter was hoping for, if he was kind of trying to make that move to now take over that position after Greg landed the head coaching job, I think that was that for me, that was a huge mistake. That was a huge tactical error because. I don't know how anyone, uh, least of all, someone who is has shown in his career to be a very intelligent guy could have 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 miscalculated things so badly to think that they could actually uh, he to think he could actually take that position after Greg was hired. Um, now obviously, you could argue that maybe he was waiting to see if Greg would keep the position because, hey, look, if Greg Berhalter would have fallen flat and and then been out of a job, you know, after a year, then maybe Jay Berhalter could have stepped in and become the CEO after that. But then even then, that would not have been a that would have been messy as well. It 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 just wouldn't. It was not a good look any way you slice it. And now, if anything, the good news now for if for for Greg Berhalter, as much as I'm sure he's not happy to see his brother leave U.S. soccer, I think it does take away a little bit of that kind of dark cloud that's been hanging over U.S. soccer and the Berhalters since Greg became the head coach, because there was that 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 perception, that idea that that there was some nepotism going on that Jay Burhalter is really the guy pulling all the strings and obviously you know recently uh, Tab Tab Ramos came forward and 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 made public comments uh, specifically naming Jay Burhalter as someone who, who was really the the kind of the power at US soccer And that and that just added fuel to the fire of of the conspiracy theories and the and the theories that Jay Burhalter was was at the forefront of getting Greg hired uh and and you know if for the people who still believe that and obviously that that is going to continue that's not going away because Jay Berhalter's leaving. However, if Jay Berhalter would have taken the CEO position, that would have it would have just taken things to another level in terms of um in, uh, in terms of looking at Greg Berhalter's job in a, in a, in a unfavorable light. And now that Jay Berhalter's moved on, Greg Berhalter can hopefully focus on just being the head coach and not being the brother of the, you know, CEO, the brother of the puppet master, the brother of the guy who's really pulling all the strings at U.S. soccer. Now Greg can focus on being the coach. And we'll see. This is a huge year for him and for U.S. soccer. And and you know what? It's going to be up to him to show that he deserves the job. And I know there are clearly there's clearly a segment of the U.S. fan base that doesn't feel, A, he deserved to get the job, and B, doesn't feel like he's doing a good job. uh, And so, he you know, he's already facing that. That's nothing new for for any for the coach of any national team, but with so much on the line in 2020, he's going to have the opportunity pretty quickly now to show, hey, I know what I'm doing. I can be a good coach. I've had my year of seasoning. I've had my year of learning the job of of, of adapting to the position, of adapting the team to my style. Now it's time to get the job done. Now it's time to prove it. Now it's time the you know, the cushion is gone now. The 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 year to feel things out is gone now. Now you have to win. And if you don't win, you are out of there. And it's one thing to to for Ernie Stewart to say he was giving Greg Berhalter time. Perfectly understandable, but now he's had a whole year. He's going to get another at least 6 months now, if not all of 2020, but now is when it counts. Now is when it matters. And if you start losing qualifiers in in the second half twenty twenty, uh, then you're gonna all of a sudden it's gonna go from give him all the time he needs to okay, we clearly need to make a change. So uh, the pressure's up. The pressure's on Berhalter, Uh But uh, you know what? Looking at November and looking at January, things are things feel like they're starting to turn around a bit. And it's early. It's early. We'll find out in. In June, we'll find out at Nations League really where things are. But for right now, things seem more positive than they were when you think back to like the fall or September after the big loss to Mexico. Uh, that was an ugly moment there. That was an ugly period where it felt like, you know what, where is the program going? What's going on? And obviously the loss in Canada was definitely kind of a rock bottom moment as well. But we'll see what Greg Berhalter can do. Moving on now to the Americans abroad front. And if you're a fan of the, of the U.S. men's national team and American soccer, you have to be feeling pretty good about how many players are, are, are really hitting 2020 in good form. And, and, and not just the usual suspects, the top players that you would expect in terms of the U.S. national team, but players who haven't been part of the setup and who are playing their way into the conversation. And you have to start with Timmy Chandler. Timmy Chandler is on fire, he has four goals. Already to start the Bundesliga, the the second half of the Bundesliga season, he has he is only one other player in the Bundesliga has scored more goals than Timmy Chandler since 2020 began, and that's Erling Haaland, the Borussia Dortmund striker, uh, who just arrived from RB Leipzig and has been tearing it up. But Timmy Chandler has four goals. He just scored two goals in, in in a game for the first time in his career. Eintracht Frankfurt is on a roll right now, and Chandler playing in an advanced role. He's actually playing in uh, as a winger for Eintracht Frankfurt, and the way he's playing right now, you have to think he absolutely deserves a call-up. And I know there's some conflict, or I know that there, there is a conflicting sentiment about Timmy Chandler. Timmy Chandler, uh, for the U.S. fans who remember his his past experiences with the U.S. national team, there is clearly a negative feeling towards Timmy Chandler. There's definitely the sense that, you know what, he's not the guy. He had so many bad performances for the U.S. We don't want to see him the, anymore. We don't want to see him again. Get him out of here. And there's also that perception that that playing for the national team doesn't mean as much to him or doesn't mean that much to him. There's definitely that stigma around him specifically. And I'm not just talking about the kind of general idea about, about dual nationals, about foreign-born U.S. national team players who maybe don't have the same love for the National Team. We've we've discussed that in the past and how BS it can definitely be to paint dual nationals with that broad brush. But specifically with Tim Chandler, there, there, he has been called out specifically in the past for, for maybe skipping call-ups or maybe not putting the U.S. National Team as a priority in his career. And he's been... He's been blamed for that in the past. And that's something that that's not something that wipes away easily. That's not something that people forget. So I think that coupled with the bad performances that he's had, uh, leaves a lot of people feeling conflicted about now and where he is now. And should he get another uh, opportunity? Should he be brought back in now? I was out in Germany in October, and I asked him directly, I said, do you want to be part of the U.S. national team again? Do you want to come back to the national team? And he, without hesitation, said he would love to go back, and he wants to go back. Um, He has not been back with the national team since Jürgen Klinsmann's last matches as head coach, which we're, at this point, talking about November of 2016. So we're talking about more than three years now, more than three years since Chandler has been part of the team. And obviously, he had a, a couple of years there where he was in... He had a couple of years there where he was injured. And so he wasn't really an option anyway, because he wasn't playing. Um, But the fact is he's back, he's healthy, he's playing and he's playing really well. And if you're a Greg Berhalter, You have to look at that. You have to look at what he's doing now and the fact that he is eligible to play. And I know there are so many young options in the pipeline and you want to start looking at that young talent. And Timmy Chandler, yeah, you wonder now at at his age, is he someone that you still want to bring in? I say yes. I say bring him back into the mix. You have to have a look at him. You have to bring him in, see where his head is, see how serious he is about coming back and being a part of this team. Um, because you, you know what, as much as there's so much young talent, as much as there's so many promising prospects, you, you don't say no to someone who's playing and scoring goals in the Bundesliga. You just don't do it. And, uh, it is interesting that now he's playing in a winger role for Eintracht. Uh, and look right now in terms of wingers, how many wingers are there starting in top leagues? How many American wingers are there starting in top leagues in Europe right now? How many? Not many. Christian Pulisic is pretty much it when he's healthy. Uh, Reina's in there now; he's starting to play. He's not starting. He's not starting for Dortmund. Timmy Chandler is starting for Eintracht Frankfurt, and for that reason, I think you got to bring him in. Uh, and I think he's pretty sincere about about the national team mattering to him. I I interviewed Timmy Chandler I back in 2016 at that last camp that he was a part of, and and I asked him about the, about the. Um, the criticisms aimed at him about the perception that he doesn't care about the national team. And he 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 disputed it. He disputed it. He said it means something to him. It, it means a lot to him to play for the U.S. national team. Now, might there have been situations in the past in his career where he had to make decisions choosing club over country? Uh, was he put into positions in the past where maybe his club Uh, kind of put pressure on him to stay and maybe turn down call-ups? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. I think that's definitely something that he had to deal with in the past. But in terms of the idea that he doesn't care about playing for the United States, that it means nothing to him to pay for the United States, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. And I've talked to him a few times. I've interviewed him on multiple occasions and I've asked him directly about it. And... You know what? He strikes me as someone who enjoys playing for the United States as much as he hasn't had the best of times on the field. He it does I think it means something to him to play for the United States. So you bring him in, you have a look, you get a feel for him, you see what he's about, you see what, how he fits into the group, and then you take it from there. But to not even bring him in when he's playing the way he's playing, I think that I I think that would be unfortunate. I think that'd be uh that 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 wouldn't be doing a thorough job of vetting the player pool, and the way he's playing right now, I think you have to bring him in, and you have to bring him in, in the March friendlies against the Netherlands and Wales. I mean, what's crazy when you think about it, Timmy Chandler is not even 30 yet. He's 29 years old. He turns 30 in March. He actually would turn 30 in the U.S. camp if you were called up for the March friendlies, so March 29th is his birthday, so... You know, I, I think at that, when you think, when you consider that, when you consider that he's not even 30 yet, that he's just about to turn 30. So it's not like he's an older player. We're not talking about a 35 year old player, 34 year old player who's on his last legs. We're talking about a player who you can argue is right now in his prime. And even though he's 29th going on 30, he's actually. Missed a a chunk of time with injury recently. So in terms of mileage on him, he's actually not, you know, he's not heading into 30 now in terms of miles on him, in terms of in terms of wear and tear in his career. I mean, I think he's someone who, you know what, this form that he's on now could be the new normal for tip Chandler. This could be the player that he is. And 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 if that's the case, I mean, if he tears it up in the Bundesliga the rest of this season and he just becomes this revelation and this n- phenomenon for Eintracht Frankfurt, I mean, how are you going to look as, as Greg Berlter and as a U.S. national team, how do you look ignoring that? How do you look ignoring a player who's playing on that level? That's just, for me... I just think it's a no-brainer. I think you bring him in, and I think he would be a good addition. I don't, I don't care what else you have going on. I don't care what other options. Yes, I get it. There's a lot of good right backs right now. There's a, you know, I get that, and there's some promising wingers in the pipeline. You find a way to bring Tim Chandler in, and you have a look at him. Another player who Greg Berhalter is going to want to take a look at in the March friendlies and a player who's he's actually mentioned as 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 someone he has his eye on to bring back into the fold is Dwayne Holmes and Dwayne Holmes is playing outstanding soccer right now for Derby County. Uh, he's really been tearing it up, especially since in the start of the new season or start of the new year in 2020 now. And Darby obviously brought in uh, Wayne Rooney, who, who who made the move over from D.C. United. And, and, and when you look at the things that Holmes is doing, scoring goals, setting up goals, uh, really showing the attacking quality in his game. I mean, I just think it's a no-brainer to bring him in when you talk about attacking midfield options. And he's someone who really not only gives you that attacking quality getting forward, but he also has that bite uh, to really, uh, you know, get in on the tackle and really give you that two-way presence uh, in that number in one of those number 10 roles in Greg Berhalter's system. Uh, and obviously he would have likely been a part of the Gold Cup setup if not for injury. Uh, and he hasn't been back since then, which has been a bit of a surprise. You know, I thought he would get called in in September. I thought he would get called in in October, and then he didn't get called in in November, and you're starting to ask yourself what is going on, and uh, you know you get it. Burhalter has called in some other midfielders that he rates, but the way that Dwayne Holmes is playing right now, you have to give him a look. And I did find it interesting. I saw someone make a comment on uh, on uh, SBI's Facebook page talking about uh, the league championship isn't a high enough level. Uh, for a player playing in the U.S. national team, and I'm thinking to myself, are you crazy? Like with the league championship is a good league. I mean, if ML- if the U.S. national team can have MLS players, the U.S. national team can have league championship players. Like, let's be serious. I mean, you need you, maybe just because you don't get to see league championship games. You don't have a sense for the quality of the league, but just because it's the second division, it's the second division in England, the highest paid league in the world. So the, the the caliber of player that's available, I mean, you just, if anything, you just have to look at at the types of players that have made the move from the league championship over to MLS and have had success uh, to understand that, listen, league championship and MLS, I mean, you can definitely make the argument the league championship is a higher level than MLS. I mean, that's, I don't think that's a crazy argument to make. So I I don't, I think that's a non-starter to begin with, but I think for me, Dwayne Holmes and the way he's playing right now, absolutely merits a look. And, uh, you know, when you look at the mid, the other midfielders, it's going to be interesting to see what Greg Brawler does in the March friendlies, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you're talking about players, MLS players are just getting into the first month of their season, um, so from that standpoint, you could understand if Berhalter decides, you know what, I'm going to maybe leave some of those MLS players that I have been calling in, let them stay with their MLS team so I can have a look at this European, at the European-based players who are playing regularly uh, and who will at that point have three months under their belt. three months, They'll be three months into their season as opposed to some of the MLS midfielders who will just be a month into their season. So from that standpoint, I hope that's what we get. I hope that's what we see. Halter take the opportunity to look at someone like Dwayne Holmes over maybe some of the other MLS midfielders who, you know what, if they miss this, this camp in March, you know what, you could still have a look at him, at look at them in June when you talk about the Nations League, when you have a bigger camp leading into the Nations League. Uh, so from that standpoint, I don't think that if he's healthy, I don't think there's any reason not to have a look at Dwayne Holmes in March. Another player who I think we will see in March And who I know U.S. National fans are hoping we see in March is Gio Reyna, and the 17-year-old winger is is he's the hot ticket right now. He uh, he broke through with the first team at Dortmund. He went to the winter camp. with Dortmund and really turned heads there earned a place on the first team and he ha- and he hasn't looked back since he's starting to play every game now even though in some cases it's only a few minutes uh he's coming off the bench he's giving them that energy off the bench but he is showing uh just the quality and the and the and the maturity that he has and he the with the goal that he scored last week i mean let let that if anyone had any doubts about why there's this hype and why there's this this sense that he could absolutely be that next player, that next "quote unquote" Christian Pulisic. You see it. You've seen it now. Now you understand, uh, and the, the the quality's there. And and he's obviously look. He's still young. He's going to have his growing pains. But right now, if we learned anything from the Christian Pulisic's Christian Pulisic's path, it's that Dortmund knows what they're doing with these young players. They 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 have a great environment there. Uh, For young talent, and you know they're gonna bring him along at the right pace, and they're doing that. They're giving him some appearances off the bench, they're putting him in situations where he can help, and he can, you know, he's not gonna hurt himself. And he's been great. I mean, I think he's really he just this past uh, they just they just played this past week against Leverkusen, and he came off the bench and played forty five minutes. Now Dortmund lost the match, but he didn't look out of place, and that's that's a that's a compliment, folks. When you're seventeen and you don't look out of place playing in high level matches in Germany and the Bundesliga that says a lot. And if you're Greg Berhalter, you know, you, you if you watch what he's what Giorena's done to this point, you have to say to yourself, I have to bring him in. Just like he brought Yanez into the January camp, you have to bring Giorina into the March camp into the March camp. And uh I actually asked Greg Berhalter about Giorena way back in May. Of la of of last year, uh you know we were just talking about prospects and I you know I told I told Berhalter I thought there was a generation of talent coming up, coming up the pipeline and uh, I asked him about Reina and he he sees Reina as as definitely that kind of potential difference making option on the wing, and w- the wing positions are so important for the way that Berhalter wants to play that he has to be I mean his mouth has to be watering at what he's seeing from from Reina at Dortmund so you want to bring him in I think he's going to be a part of the March frenzy without a doubt um I don't think he would be necessarily be a part of Olympic qualifying I don't know if you're Dortmund and you don't have to release him why would you have him uh go into the Olympic qualifying tournament as much as it would be great for the US team to have Reina there but I think you can argue that you know what he's at that he's he's up at a new level now he's playing every game you know only a few minutes sometimes but he is getting on the field consistently in the Bundesliga, so from that standpoint, you have to think March friendlies with the senior team. Have a look at Reina, see what he can do, um, and then and then you know what down the road when you talk about the Olympics, that's different. When you talk about the Olympic tournament and you're Dortmund, if you're Dortmund and you have an opportunity to have Reina be showcased at the Olympics, if the U.S. makes the Olympics, I mean that is, I mean that's too huge an opportunity to to pass up. So uh, it, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with Reina, but. I think now the cat's out of the bag. The kid is legit. The kid has real talent, and he's in the perfect uh, situation. to 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 He's in that incubator where that talent can be can be molded, and it's great to see. It's going to be great to watch his development. Turning our attention to MLS, and believe it or not, the MLS season is only I want to say less than three weeks away, and that's pretty crazy when you think about it. Uh, it's like on one hand, it's been a long off season because MLS cup was earlier than it's been in a long time, but it just feels like this off season went by super fast. And part of the reason for that is because there's been so much news, uh, in the months between, and everything from you know you, when you're looking at expansion teams, uh, you're looking at the CBA, which obviously that's one of the big storylines. The, the CBA was 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 agreed upon. There will be no strike, and that's huge. That's huge news. Uh, and you know I've been covering I've I've been covering MLS for for two decades now, so I've been through this a few times with CBAs, and it's it's crazy. It, it's almost crazy how quickly or how how Smoothly the the process uh, this transition went, or how smooth the process was to getting a deal. And not only was it a, a a deal that that got done well ahead of of the schedule in terms of when you look at past CBA deals, but the actual deal that they they agreed to. I mean, I think it was a huge win for the players. And uh, you know, some people obviously made the argument that oh, they they, they should have gotten more people. <laughs> when it comes down to it, there's always a negotiation, right? The MLS owners were not giving away everything. They weren't. They weren't going to just say, okay, no salary cap. Okay, teams can spend $20 million now. Every team can have their own private jet. It was never happening. So you can't can't always look at things from the standpoint of what would be the absolute best case scenario. And if you're not close to that, you lost. That's just not how you look at it. You have to look at it from the standpoint of progress made. And when you look at the last CBA... For me the last CBA was a disaster. For me the last CBA and the fact that they that you know the players union at the time tried to sell it as a victory when look I, you can look it up you can go back and look at the records I I trashed it at the time. I didn't think it was a good good deal for the players. This deal is a good deal for the players. Could it have been better? Of course it could have been better. Of course there were things that they still weren't able to get, but the fact that free agency is the the, the window now in terms of free agency is more it's it's more of a thing now. That's great. The fact that you know a 25-year-old with 5 years in can go to any team they want that's huge. Now, do do I like the fact that that there's a cap on the amount of of a, of a salary increase that they can enjoy as they make the move? Do I like that? No. I still think that's not that that's why it's not really free agency. That's why the free and free agency, there's still an asterisk there because when it comes down to it, if you're a player uh and and you know, you play out, let's say you're a player, right? you're 20 years old. You sign a 5-year deal. You play 5 seasons in MLS for You know, whatever team, SBI United. Let's say we had a team in MLS. I I found a billion dollars to afford the expansion fee. We have a player, 20 years old, puts his five years in. And for whatever reason, we can't come to an agreement on a new deal, right? He's still on that first five-year contract, right, which paid probably not that much. It probably, you know, let's say if you're a rookie coming into the league, you're probably not. Let's say you're making hundred thousand dollars a year first year. By the end of that deal, you're making two hundred thousand or two, you know, two hundred and change. Uh, let's say you're even making two hundred fifty thousand dollars at the end of a five-year deal, right? Now, if in that five years you've become a, you know, an all-star. You've become a national team call up, uh, and you know what? You're uh, you're one of the better players in the league. Should you now be limited to to the amount of money that the the amount of an increase that you can get going to your next club uh, to the point where your next contract is only going to be a fraction of that first contract or or twenty? Let's say it's twenty. What is it? Twenty percent, twenty five percent of an increase. That's not that much. So from that standpoint, it's it's not ideal. It's not it's an unfortunate situation from that standpoint, um, and obviously that's a very specific scenario. Uh, but the thing is, it also creates a situation where you're going to still have these cases where players can force their way out of teams before the end of their contracts. And if you're you know if I'm SBI United and I have a player that's heading into the last year of their deal, and I know I'm not going to sign them to a new deal. Uh, And they and they want, you know, they're not happy. Do I want them to keep do I want to keep them around for that last unhappy year or do I want to trade them get and actually recoup something, not lose them in free agency and also by trading them, give them their opportunity to sign a new contract at a much higher raise than they would have. Uh, ha- enjoyed other, and obviously that's just one aspect of the new CBA. I mean, there everything from uh, a new minimum that's going to take the 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 roster minimum salary above a hundred thousand. Uh, obviously, the charter flight situation, it's, they've doubled the charter flights now. They're requiring teams to use the charter flights, so it's not a case where where it's an optional thing and teams can just choose not to use the charter flights. Uh, I think that's huge, obviously, because when it comes down to it, it, it when you look at these teams, uh, some of these teams and some of the horror stories about the travel uh, it's pretty crazy, especially when you're talking about big games uh, and situations where these players, it's expecting them to, to go through these travel ordeals and then play in in like important games. I mean, I think it's always been a bit of a uh, bit of an unfortunate situation in MLS. Overall, though, if you're a player in MLS, you have to feel pretty good about the progress the union was able to make with this CBA. And the I got to say, the revenue sharing aspect of it is very intriguing wrinkle in the whole thing, because obviously uh, you, you saw that the new CBA has an in- increase in overall spending, which is huge. You have a more more opportunity for that to be spread across across the roster. And it's not just a case of new players coming in, reaping the rewards of that. Uh, I think that's huge. But also the fact that revenue sharing is a big part of this new CBA. And therefore, if and when MLS figures this TV thing out and, and starts to actually see an increase in ratings and start seeing more revenue from the TV side of things. Once that happens, players will be in position to benefit from that. Players will be in position to start seeing real increases in spending on, on salaries. So I think that's a huge step and that's something that's, that maybe isn't getting enough attention now because they aren't going to see the immediate impact of that until we see start seeing the ratings go up, until we start seeing the new TV deals... The the new TV deals come in with bigger numbers, and that's still that's still to come. That's still a few steps away. But this is progress. This is a, that. was for me. That was a very interesting concession and an interesting step in this whole process. The fact that the MLS players were able to get that as part of this CBA. In other MLS news, New York City FC will be playing its Concacaf Champions League home leg. Versus Costa Rican side San Carlos at Red Bull Arena, and I gotta say, I'm sure for all New York City FC fans in the area, it was a it was a bit of an embarrassing day because it, you have to think if of all the places the team could have to play because they can't play at Yankee Stadium, to have to play at Red Bull Arena is definitely the ultimate kind of you know. It's a, it's it's an it's embarrassing. There's no other way to say it. Uh, clearly, NYCFC didn't want to have to do this. They proposed other other options. They they suggest, they recommended other venues, some college stadiums. And when it came down to it, Concacaf just wasn't having it. They had they had certain requirements that that exist for for Concacaf Champions League matches. And you know I did find that a bit interesting. Um, because you know I, I've been to, I mean I still I, I remember being at a, at a, a Ala Wellense match and their sta- I wouldn't say their stadium is the most modern stadium you've ever seen. Uh, the atmosphere was great, no question about it, but I have to think there are venues in the Tri-state New York area that are at least as good as Ala Wellense's home stadium. Or Herediano, or, or, you know, there's plenty of, of, of stadiums in CONCACAF that are not as good as some college venues in the New York Tri-State area, but for whatever reason, CONCACAF decided, no, we don't like any of those, you're going to have to play at Red Bull Arena, uh, and it's an unfortunate situation for NYCFC, but having said that, you know what? NYCFC needs a stadium. There's no question about it. It's it's clear as day. It's a, it's a big issue. It's been a big issue since the, since NYCFC arrived in MLS. For those of you who don't remember, MLS when MLS brought NYCFC in as the second team in New York, it was with the understanding that the team would have a stadium on the way. That a stadium was coming, that a stadium was going to happen. Obviously, some things fell through. It wasn't an ideal situation. And now, obviously, MLS is starting to go through that in a similar situation in Nashville, where you're having a—I'll a we, we, I'll touch on that a bit later. But we were seeing it play out again, um, and it, it was this kind of exact situation that MLS, I'm sure, was hoping to avoid, a team— having to play important matches wherever they can find a place to play. And that's not an ideal situation. Uh, obviously, NYCFC had to play their playoff game last year at at City Field, which actually, for me, was a better setup, but it's still not great. You don't want teams bouncing around. You want them to have a home. And, of course, the timing was very curious. But, funny enough, the day that NYCFC had to acknowledge this embarrassing situation a New York Times story emerged claiming that a stadium project is 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 gaining traction and it's in the works and it's looking good. So we could see a stadium, we could see a soccer stadium, not too far from Yankee Stadium. Of course, it's still, we're talking probably four years away, but reportedly there's progress. And that's great to hear. And that's something that would obviously be a game changer for NYCFC because when you're talking about spending a million dollars per game or whatever exorbitant amount it is costing them to rent Yankee Stadium. Uh and also Yankee Stadium, let's face it, it's not it's not an ideal venue to play soccer games. Um MLS soccer games. It's not an ideal venue by any means. The sight lines are terrible. Uh it's just it's not a great place to watch soccer games. So Uh, So for a variety of reasons, NYCFC needs to get a stadium, but it's not, there's not going to be one for another at least four years. So, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt, that report. I thought the timing was a little little curious to say the least, but hopefully there's truth to it. Hopefully there is progress. And hopefully this wasn't just kind of a, uh, a bandaid on a, on a messy situation that them, 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 you know, them <laughs> NYCFC with the pulling some strings for some convenient coverage to distract from what was clearly an embarrassing situation. Um, because, you know what, if NYCFC does get a stadium and if they are able to have a soccer stadium where the reports are putting a stadium, that'd be huge. That would be huge. That would be a game changer. But we're still several years away from that. And we're still a ways away from that even being approved, let alone becoming a reality. All that said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a pretty uh, interesting situation uh, for that Champions League match. And uh, Red Bull Arena has actually, uh, they, they have closed off the the supporters section where the Red Bull supporters sit for their home games. So, I, I, I'm i sure they didn't want uh, NYCFC supporters uh, stepping in there and making a mess. Uh, and also, prob- I'm sure they want to avoid a situation where Red Bull supporters show up and and sit in the supporter section and and turn it into a showcase for them. Um, Although you wonder if Red Bull if that was the Red Bulls deciding they didn't want that or if it was NYCFC and Cap deciding that Having said that I have to think some Red Bulls supporters will find their way to Red Bull Arena uh, to cheer on San Carlos and and hope for the upset uh, over NYCFC. Uh, it's gonna be an interesting night, I gotta say and, and I do I think it's going to be any kind of crowd at Red Bull Arena? Uh, probably not. I mean even even the Red Bulls for their home their home championship. Concacaf Champions League games, uh, they didn't necessarily draw uh, huge numbers. I mean, I, I I remember they played Chivas, and that was they had a good crowd for that one. Obviously, that was a big game, but uh, I don't think we're gonna expect too many uh, making the trek out to to Harrison to see NYCFC. Although I hope so. I hope they you know they can draw uh, you know more than five thousand. But uh, it's gonna I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath on on just how how many people show up for that. And thankfully for NYCFC, this is a one-off situation. Even if NYCFC wins and moves on in the tournament, the next match will not be played at Red Bull Arena. This will be, hopefully for them, the last time they have to play as a home team at Red Bull Arena. In other New York Red Bulls adjacent news, Bradley Wright Phillips has signed with LAFC. And I have to say, Uh, as far as signings go this one has not received that much fanfare but I gotta tell you what a huge steal for LAFC and as much as people want to might try to make the argument that look Bradley Wright Phillips is done he doesn't have much left look I know he had injuries last year he didn't he didn't make the impact last year that you would expect but he was only a year removed from having another big year and uh, it's uh, it's for me it's a little mind-boggling uh I mean I understand NY uh, I understand the Red Bulls deciding you know what we want to move another direction we want to get younger we don't want to tie a ton of money into a contract for a player that we feel is now you know on the downward slope of his career I get that I totally understand that but have but if the fact that LAFC can sign him, and again, we don't know what Bradley Wright Phillips asks for from the Red Bulls. So we don't know if now maybe the market has forced Bradley Wright Phillips to take less money than he would have taken from the Red Bulls. We don't know. We don't know the details. What I do know is he Bradley Wright Phillips is joining the strongest team in MLS. Bradley Wright Phillips, who is who has scored goals. On a consistent basis, when healthy, on teams that weren't necessarily offensive juggernauts, he still put up the goals. Now you're putting him in an attack with Carlos Vela, with uh, Diego Rossi, with all the pieces that are there. Brian Rodriguez, with all the firepower, with Bob Bradley as the coach. I mean... They, they're coming off a record-setting season and in, in, in points and they're going to be even better this year it's crazy to me laFC is going to shatter the points total and if if barring injuries barring some like a serious issue with injuries for them I don't see how they don't win MLS Cup I really don't I don't see it I don't see how anyone beats them I get it there are some good teams in MLS this year there are some teams that have done really good work with their rosters heading into this this year so they're they' for me they're probably like 16 Teams that you could say are legitimate top level title contenders. But for me, right now, LAFC, they're on their own tier. They're on their own tier. And I know you can argue, oh, yeah, well, you know what? Last year they didn't, they didn't make it, they, they got knocked off by Seattle last year. Why can't it happen again? Of course, it can happen. When you're talking about a one-game situation, when you're talking anything is possible, but when when it comes down to it, LAFC is for my money, without a shadow of a doubt, the best team, the strongest team in MLS. And there's still some questions heading into the year. How will their goalkeeper, their new goalkeeper signing, how will he fare in his first year in MLS? Uh, Vermeer coming in, uh, the, the Dutch goalkeeper replacing Tyler Miller. Is he, but what if he's an upgrade? I mean, if you, you have to, looking at his his resume, you have to think is at least as good as Tyler Miller. But what if he's better? What if, looking at his resume, what if he lives up to the resume and he's better than Tyler Miller? All of a sudden, you've upgraded at, at a position that you already had a pretty strong presence in. So you take that into account. You take a Bradley Wright Phillips into account. Obviously, Adam Ediamande uh, suffered a broken foot there uh, recently, and that obviously helped precipitate this, this deal. Um, but I gotta tell you, man. Right now, LAFC, the moves that they're making—it's like they—they are—they are playing at a different level than other front offices right now. And look, there's some teams doing some really good work this off season. But LAFC, the fact that they still are making some of these moves—it's—it's it's impressive to see. It's very impressive to see. Another team that's been the subject of plenty of headlines this off is Inter Miami, and they're getting ready for their first season in MLS. And we're still waiting to see who will be their first big blockbuster de- designated player signing. And as of as of right now, they still don't have one. And Rodolfo Pizarro, the Mexican playmaker, was reportedly it, it was a deal that was ready to be done. It was ready. It was it was in the books. It was going to happen. And now it's been tied up. And now there's issues. Is it going to happen? It does. Is it, it doesn't look like it's necessarily going to happen now. So, if you're into Miami, you're 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 just a few weeks away from the start of your season, and you have yet to sign that blue chip signing, that marquee name. Uh, and I know there's been some question about that, about whether uh, you need that. And 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 there's definitely been the argument made that when you're talking about Miami as a market, you need the big names. And I, I, I agree. I agree that you need at least one marquee type name. Obviously, there aren't a ton of Zlatans laying around for you just to scoop up. I get that. But the fact that they have been unable uh, up to this point to land one is a little concerning. It's a little concerning. Uh, and does that mean they're not going to be a good team? I still think they could be a good team. I mean, the hiring of Diego Alonso as the head coach was huge. Very good manager. Uh, the, so the way they've built this roster uh, with with several Established and and proven MLS veterans, I think, is huge for them. I think they're, they're like right off the of bat as a baseline, it should be a competitive team. We're not talking about an FC Cincinnati situation. I think Inter Inter Miami is going to contend for a playoff spot, and that's not and that's and that's even without knowing what they're going to do with all of the DP with their DP slots yet. We don't even know yet. So even without that, I still like what I see from the build of the roster, but the star power. You kind of need it. You kind of need it. And is it going to be Pizarro? Is it going to be Edison Cavani? Is it going to be Luka Modric? I've seen his name mentioned. Uh, it, it, it remains to be seen, but they do need somebody. They, For my money, I get it. You can argue, look at Atlanta. Atlanta, you know, Almiron and Joseph Martinez, they weren't big, big names and they panned out. They turned out to be great investments. I get it. I see that side of it. Um, And you can definitely say, hey, that blueprint worked there. Why can't it necessarily work in Miami? I I see it. I understand it. It could, in theory, work if you signed the right players uh, to be those figureheads who maybe aren't household names, but who are top-notch players that you spend the real big money on. I get it. It could work. It could work. But I don't know. For me, I just think when I think Miami, I I think you bring in at least one marquee name, one name that will grab the headlines and as of right now I don't know if we're going to see that we're only a few weeks away from the start of the first season and they haven't done it yet and that's uh it's not looking good right now so you know what does that mean it's going to be a bad year in Miami no I think they're going to be a good team but I still think they need some sizzle I still think they need a star player to bring in and hopefully they get one and that's it on the MLS front and the last topic we'll touch on is pro rel promotion and relegation we had to talk about it because the lawsuit filed by against MLS and U.S. Soccer has has come to an end. It's, it's basically hit the final roadblock. It's not going anywhere. It's been tossed. The court for arbitration for sport has ruled that the FIFA rule that would seem to suggest that pro rel is mandatory has not been has not been upheld. It's basically been decided that FIFA has the has the discretion to enforce or not enforce the pro-rel requirement. And basically that means American soccer is not required and will not be required to have promotion and relegation. And that's obviously uh, bad news for people who feel that promotion and relegation should be in American soccer. Uh, and and I've, I, am, I have for a long time now have, have been a believer that promotion and relegation could work. But I am not a believe I am not someone who thinks that it that American soccer is doomed to fail because it doesn't have promotional relegation, And uh, I know there are some people who feel pro rel can't work, won't work. It would be a disaster. You can't have it. I don't believe in that. I believe that if, if, if somehow you, you made it mandatory, if somehow, if us soccer decided, listen, pro rel has to be a thing. We have to have it. It has to exist. And it was forced on the game in America it would work. It would work. It would absolutely work. I think it would work, but we're not going to, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. MLS uh, obviously has a lot of influence in U.S. soccer, and there's so much money coming into MLS now that to expect MLS to just scrap everything that it's done and scrap its structure and 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 throw everything out the window and just enforce pro-rel and have U.S. soccer force pro-rel on MLS was just never a realistic proposition. And when you have ownership groups spending 200, 300 million dollars on expansion fees to then tell those owners, to then tell those ownership groups, okay, we know you just spent 300 million. But guess what? You could end up having a a USL team in a year like it was never going to happen. So uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate that we can't see that alternate alternate universe where promotional relegation was implemented But we need to accept the reality that it's not going to happen, at least not on the top level. And what I'm very interested to see is if USL implements promotion and relegation, because there's been talk about that happening and if that happens, it would be it would be a great experiment to see how it could work in American soccer. And when it comes down to it, MLS expanding the way it's expanding, it's almost pushing itself towards promotional legation because I really believe that when you're talking about a 30-team league, I just don't think it's, it's not a practical size for a league. And, and also, when you think about it, once you get to 30 teams – uh, it's not. It's not as if there aren't going to still be markets that have the money to be able to afford MLS. And then at that point, then what do you do? I mean, there's still money there to be made. Uh, and I think at that point, you if you have lower divisions that are stronger, lower divisions that could potentially handle. Uh, the promotional the, the gap between uh, first division and second division because right now when you look at the spending and the prices of teams in in MLS and USl the gap is so huge that it's just that would that that's why you won't see promotional irrigation but I think when you start seeing the lower divisions get stronger uh, and actually become viable businesses that are making real money uh, once you see that happen and once you see the gap close, between the lower divisions and and MLS. Uh, Once you see that, then maybe you'll start to see more of an open... acceptance of the idea of down the road, potentially um, uh, promotional litigation being a thing in American soccer. I still think it could work down the road. I just don't see it anytime soon. I don't see it in the next 10 years. Could it be in the next 20 years? Possibly. Absolutely. If, if USL is thriving, if you're talking about second division uh, teams, third division teams that are really growing and really making money and really packing in the stadiums, and you see soccer have this real groundswell across the board. Then, then, then it's going to be a situation where uh, those owners that are in MLS won't be so afraid of the drop off because then you're looking at it say, hey, you know what? We if we by chance have to be relegated, it's not a it's not as steep a drop, and it's something we could survive, and it's something that we could bounce right back up. And you know what? We believe in our business, so. Who We're not going to be afraid of promotional relegation. So you know what? Maybe once the league gets set on a number and set on 30, once MLS is set at 30 for a, a decent amount of time and those new teams have been able to start to recoup some of their investment and some of their expansion investment, maybe then down that road... We can start talking about promotional relegation, but that's way down the road, folks. That's that's not anytime soon. Uh and I know I know that makes some people very unhappy. I know that makes a certain segment of the American fan base uh disgusted because there's you know, you have those people who hate the fact that there's no promotional relegation. And I get it, I understand it. I, I I see the appeal of it. I get it. I totally get it. I think it could work, but you know what? That's not the system that we have, and that's not the system we are going to have. So, uh, you know, at this point, it's about trying to strengthen those lower divisions, because when it comes down to it, those divisions need to get better. And I believe that's the last topic for the first episode of the SBI show of 2020, and it will definitely not be the last. If you're a longtime listener... Thank you for coming back. And if you're a new listener, welcome aboard. I'm shooting for two episodes a week. I'm not ready to go for the five days a week run that some, some podcasts do. Uh, that, uh, that'd be like a, a, an ideal dream down the road when I actually find someone to produce the show for me. But for now, we're going to shoot for twice a week cause, because there's so much to talk about, so many topics, and there's plenty of material To work with on the show. And hopefully, this is that good first step to get us rolling into 2020. Uh, we'll, We'll be sure to have guests going forward players, coaches, general managers. I'll have fellow journalists on the show as well. Uh, in terms of whether or not I have a co-host going forward, uh, I'm still looking into that. Uh, for right now, though, it's probably just going to be me to start things off, uh, and and obviously guests and interviews. Uh, interviews are going to be a big part of the show going forward, and it won't always be interviews for the show specifically. I obviously do a lot of interviews in my work, uh, and I want to share some of those uh, as often as I can, because a lot of times you, you, know, you read the story uh, that the interview is. Derive from, but you, I'm sure, would like to hear the voice of the, of the player or the coach or the general manager, whoever the person is, as you were able to hear Uli Yanez on this episode, expect more of that going forward. I have so many interviews uh, that I've done, even just this past month, uh, that I haven't even been able to, to touch on yet, whether in written form or in audio form, so you can expect to hear more of that on this show going forward so definitely stick with me there's more to come in 2020 and it's going to be a big year in american soccer and hopefully a big year for the show that's all for now thank you for listening i'm ivis Collarsa. this is the sbi show